you, this is Bird Road, and we're recording this episode on an enormous day of international news. We're on the cusp of war with Iran after a U.S.-led attack on an airport in Baghdad killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani here in Florida. We're represented by two cheerleaders in the Senate, Marco Rubio and Rick Scott, who are kind of doing everything they can to push us further into conflict. A lot of the worst people in the world are getting their wish and seeing a uh, military escalation. But during this very uniquely dangerous moment around the world, there's a million podcasts that can talk to you about that and are equipped to cover that news. But we're kind of trying to stay true to ourselves here, uh, staying local. And this is an episode about crime in Miami and uh, specifically law enforcement in Miami. And crime is down in Miami. You wouldn't know it from the evening news or the sort of pervasive drumbeat for more policing, more incarceration. But each year with the occasional blip here and there, there are fewer and fewer rapes, murders, assaults, and property crime overall. And it's been that way since the early 90s, despite the soaring incarcerations, prosecutions. And that truth kind of makes days like December 6th very uniquely frustrating. Um, on December 6th, Lamar Alexander and Ronnie Hill robbed a jewelry store in Coral Gables and led the police on a cross-country chase that ended with a bloody, violent shootout on a busy Miramar Street. And police took cover behind civilian cars in some cases while the civilians were still occupying them. Police shot and killed the two armed robbers, but in the melee they also killed UPS driver Frank Ordonez, who had been kidnapped by the robbers, and Richard Cutshaw, who was a 70-year-old union representative from Hollywood. There's a rot in our police department, and there's a lack of accountability, and it appears to begin and end at the top with the state's, the state's attorney, Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, who's a very familiar name for anybody who's been in Miami for any, any period of time. Give you an idea of how long she's been here. Her predecessor was Janet Reno. Uh, this year, with the Miramar shooting and other egregious Miami-Dade police behavior as the background to this, she's facing her first serious challenger in years. Um, not quite officially yet, but pretty soon, and we'll talk about that too. We're going to talk with um, we're going to talk about the state of policing in Miami with our guest today, Ray Tessef. Ray, welcome to Bird Road. Pleasure to be here. Thank you, David. So Ray is a civil rights lawyer and a defense attorney. He's a member of the Florida Justice Institute. He advocates for victims of police abuse and brutality, and he's been a vocal critic of police abuse of authority throughout Miami and South Florida. Uh, is that pretty accurate? That's that's very accurate. <laughs> okay. So you've represented a lot of people who have either lost family or had their lives changed uh, at the hands of like over-the-top policing. What struck you about the shooting in Miramar? Oh, goodness. Where do we start? Um, well, first of all... Um, the human element, of course, which often I think is overlooked in that, um, you know, there was a tragic loss of life. And, uh, and I think that can never be forgotten. And to think that, you know, you're simply doing your work, going about your, your work, and the next thing you know, you're, you're held up and you're going on this crazy chase and your life ends, or the, the poor soul who was in a car near where this happened. Um, and then I think um, the other reaction that I think that jumps out at everyone is that, you know, it, it doesn't appear as if it had to happen that way. Right. And there seemed to be a, a total lack of strategic approach to what was happening. Um, there's issues perhaps of training, coordination among police departments um, that you know begs out and and raises the question as to whether or not this could have been avoided the the obvious uh 
you know, we, we, we watch movies, we see things on TV or video movies, what have you, where people open up and gunfire and, and, you know, it just seems to you know, be part of the plot. Yeah. Uh, it's a fictionalization. It's a fictionalization. Yeah. And the, the, you know, th- this, this really happened, you know, on one of our busy highways, expressways and, and all the folks who must've been there and just absolutely terrified and had this go down literally right before their eyes. And, right. and some of them were, were used as shields, you know, while, while bullets were flying. And so, you know, it's, it's, it's just an extraordinary scene, frightening, horrific. The thing that struck me, uh, apart from those immediately obvious, you know, like the, the horror of it and, you know, echoing what you, what you said, but that it was over just kind of a generic property crime. And uh, I, I know that the um, the perpetrators in the case were were armed, but again, it was over a pretty paltry amount of, of jewelry. And it seems like things, as they happen, as they tend to happen a lot when, when, Miami, did law, or when Miami law enforcement gets involved, they escalated. And it turned into that sort of uh, something out of a movie, like to, alluding mm-hmm. to what you say. I mean, it seems like that's a common occurrence where a lot of these sort of smaller crimes will escalate into something bigger and more violent. Yeah, I, I, yeah, yeah, I would hesitate to simply label this as a property crime. Mm-hmm. I mean, yes, in fact, you know, it was property taken and stolen, but it was done. But it was at, at the, at the, at the barrel jewelry store, yeah. at the barrel of a gun. Right. And, and too often, you know, those sorts of situations escalate, you know, very quickly and, and lives are taken. So um, this, was a, this was a real, real serious deal. Um, and, you know, I wouldn't compare it to, you know. A break-in or a, something. A, a, yeah. I mean, a, a, a crime. I mean, the presence of the firearm itself immediately you know, makes this a very, very serious situation. So, you know, I don't want to minimize the danger that everyone involved, you know, faced, particularly right. the police and the, the, the bystanders and the victims of the crime. So, uh, again, to me, to me what, what screams out is, is the strategic, the lack of strategic planning and, and coordination and how to deal with this and training. Um, to be fair here, we, I frankly don't know all the facts. It'll, I think it'll be quite some time before... All the facts come in. Um, yeah, I'd read that they they have uh, one spokesperson for the uh, Miami-Dade County had said that there's thousands of hours right. of footage or thousands of pieces of footage right. that they're sifting through. What's happened, not only in a situation like this, but particularly in a situation like this, is that um, crime, not just here in Miami or Miami-Dade or South Florida, but throughout the country, now the prevalence of cell phones, of surveillance, that... It, you know, in the good old days or, or the old days uh, when something happened, it was rare that there would be footage of the incident. Yeah. It just simply didn't happen. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a very recent phenomena that not only is it common now, but it seems to be prevalent to the point where it literally takes hours and hours to break down all of the, the video and, and all of the um, footage that, that took place. And then that's from all these different angles. I will say another thing that I think um, needs to be said here in, in my understanding of what's been reported and what happened is that the, the families of the victims were, have been seriously left out of the loop yeah. in terms of their being informed of what had happened right. and why it happened. And, you know, institutionally, these police departments, lawyers get involved, you know, you have political considerations, you have, 
uh, case investigation concerns about compromising evidence and what have you. But it seemed to me from what's been reported that uh, the police have not adequately reached out and developed a relationship with the family to let them know. There's a, there's a way that can be done in a way that would, I think, satisfy the family to some extent to at least pull them into the loop to let them know what's going on. As I recall from what's been reported, that, that the family was appreciative of the FBI, an FBI agent who had taken the time to do so. But And this is a while now. I don't know what's happened recently, but the family complained that they hadn't talked personally to anybody from any of the representatives of the various police departments. There were as many as, I think, a, a half dozen um, police officers who, who, excuse me, police agencies that were involved and the, the representatives or the leaders of those organizations had not made an effort to reach out to the family. I think that is, is unfortunately symbolic of the distance that's been developed over time between police agencies and the public. Yeah, and the communities that they serve. That's this that's, area. That's a, that's a real, real important point. Right. Uh, whether it be in terms of basic law enforcement and protecting our community and holding people accountable, okay, uh, whether they be police officers or, or whoever, there's, there's, there's a lack of distrust. And the first um, step or the first bridge toward trust is communication and a relationship. And, and our police departments, um, unfortunately, uh, need a lot of improvement in that respect, uh, particularly with underserved communities, poor people, communities of color, uh, those communities which unfortunately are too often over-policed. Right. So when I, when I saw and heard that, I was like, you know, that's, that's again, symptomatic of the breakdown between the public and, and our police. And I want to talk about that. But first, I want to say, I want to ask, do you, that, that seems like this area where public relations is leading into legal affairs or, 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 or the, the, the legal compliance aspect of things. Is there, is there a reason behind that? lack of of uh expressing remorse and i think of the world of public relations where one of the first things that you learn is don't apologize because then you're admitting that it's your fault right is there a component of that at play in, in this lack of communication well I, i'm sure i'm sure that's what they'll say but uh any good lawyer or any smart person or any person with any common sense can feel compassion and sorrow and extend sympathies to someone who's lost their family or their loved their loved one without quote making an admission of legal liability or what have you i mean i, I think that's just silly to say that mm -hmm. and too often they stand on a position like that um you know they don't they don't have to go there i think i think with the family the family appears to be very reasonable people all they want to hear is that this will be investigated fairly and completely and and want to be informed as yeah. to what's going on so yes, there are there are clearly questions of you know making admissions, but you're not making an admission when you simply go to express your right. condolences for the loss of someone and say you know I'll do my best. We're going to do our best to get to the bottom of this, and if changes need to be made, they'll be made. And and I'm so sorry. So talking about what could improve that communication and what could uh, Im improve the relationship between these communities, where a lot of people will, if you talk to them, say they don't feel like they're being police they feel like they're being occupied that it's like an occupational force i think a lot of people maybe especially around miami might have first heard your name specifically with a, with a client you worked for named um, andrew mossberg 
tell us about the Andrew Mossberg case, if you can, and what like um, uh, parallels you can draw more broadly with a lot of a lot of police abuse of authority that we see in the region and really around the country. Well, Andrew Mossberg is somebody I represented uh, several years ago um, in my in my legal practice. Um, I represented my my practice when I had my own firm and I worked for another law firm. I specialized in cases dealing with police misconduct, uh, First Amendment rights, and criminal defense. And and I represented a lot of people. Unfortunately, Andrew was just one of many who uh, was victimized by by police officers. People who shouldn't be police officers. And and you know. In, in short form, in short form, a- Andrew Mossberg was walking uh, on the sidewalk right outside his building that he lived in in Miami Beach with his little boy, walking his dog, and they were returning from their afternoon walk at the day's end, and Andrew saw a young woman uh, being physically roughed up, uh, treated very disrespectfully, violently by someone, uh, called attention to it. It escalated. It happened to be an undercover police officer. Uh, and the next thing you know, my client is, is, is being beaten, thrown on the ground, arrested, falsely accused of, of interfering with what the police were doing. In fact, the young woman was, um, had made a complaint. Had been, actually, a complaint had been made about her. She'd been involved in a relationship with someone in a nearby building. Um, and, and the police were there, uh, by coincidence because they were doing an undercover operation nearby and the undercover officer, uh, call was called over to, to deal with this young woman, uh, not knowing, uh, or excuse me, Andrew, not knowing any of this simply sees a person acting violently and aggressively with a young woman. And so not in a uniform, obviously, not in a yeah. uniform and, and very quickly, uh, you know, the officer reacted a lot. A good portion, a significant portion of that was actually caught on video, and uh, and there were witnesses to the event, and yeah. he ended up being beaten. and And what's unfortunate is that the, the police, you know, wrote up the case in a way to 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 protect themselves. Yeah. Uh, you were able to secure um, a judgment on behalf of your client or a settlement, I think. On settlement on the lawsuit. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but do you think? Or from your perspective, did that do anything to change internal policies? Did that change the likelihood that 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 would happen again? Or is it more of like a case of sort of impunity? Like, well, that's just sort of the cost of doing business. And I, I say that to sort of lead into my next question, too, which is you've talked about a top down restructuring of of the uh, the way that 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 Miami-Dade and police departments around the, the county discipline officers. I want to know what you think like that would look like and whether or not you think that uh, losing a case like that or having to settle in a case like that makes a structural difference in the way that they actually are out there policing. If that's on the mind of those pe- those officers that shouldn't be officers, um, what do you think? Oh, I think that's a really, really complicated question. Uh, <laughs> Good. <laughs> I, I, yeah, those are the best kind, right? Um well, let me just say this. I think about that and have thought about that and continue to think about that a lot. Um, on, a, on a most basic level, I think it's very, very important that 
people who've been harmed by government abuse, particularly police abuse, um, bring cases to receive either compensation or some satisfaction for having stood up against police abuse and government abuse. And, and to put them back together to the extent that a lawsuit can, I think is a very, very important thing. Um, Andrew, I won't speak for Andrew, I'm sure Andrew still feels the whole situation is quite bittersweet as, as often happens. I mean, there was some resolution that was positive from a financial standpoint, uh, but, but did the case play out entirely the way he had hoped or wanted in retrospect? Only he can answer that. Um, you know, so I, I do think it's important, however, for him, along with many of the other people I represented in cases like that, that, that they receive compensation. And it's not just about money. It, compensation in the, in the holistic sense in terms of they stood up, they fought back, they brought attention with the hope that what happened to them would never happen to anyone else. Um, now, does that, does that have some effect in the, in the large scheme of things? Um, some cases perhaps have more effect than others. You would hope on an individual level that those police officers who were involved uh, would, would remember that, that case or what, what they were put through, if they were in their eyes put through anything. Yeah. I, think, I think it may have an effect on some of them, but I think in large part it doesn't, largely because of the protective nature and the arrangement that police departments have and their inability and unwillingness to, to adequately discipline police officers. That police officer who's still on the force in Miami Beach had, had to my recollection, 30 or 40 complaints yeah. of physical violence against people. He had been sued, okay, no less than, if I recall correctly, four or five times for excessive force, and he's still on the force. He's still on the police force. And to this day, the police chief and, and other officers there still try to talk their way out of what happened in that particular case, that officer should have been fired. Okay, um, institutionally, and and does it make a difference? Um, I don't know. I, I um, like I said, some cases more than others. Uh, cases of a larger magnitude. Not to say that that's not one of a, a great magnitude, but where there's loss of life right. uh, on some occasions. Uh, Hopefully there'll be some reform, but the system really isn't built for reform. The system has a protective cocoon around itself that, that immunizes itself from any real change. And, and that's a very, very complicated uh, <laughs> uh, cocoon, so to speak, to try to unravel. So I mean, I mean it's, it's very deeply embedded in... Right. In, in our society by the nature of what police do, how the function of police has evolved over the last um, 50 to 100 years. I mean, the police in our country were started uh, in this country to chase down runaway slaves. That's the origins of the American police system. I mean, that's not, that's not just me talking. That's not just my perspective. Those are facts. And so, you know, over time, the, the police departments... Uh, police departments have, have been largely used as as a, as a way to kind of keep things the way things are, whether that be to enforce segregation and, and de facto apartheid in our cities or to protect powerful economic interests. That's the way it is. 
uh, in the advent of, of 9-11 and in, in the last 20 years, you have a disturbing increase in militarization of local police departments, right. um, which, which happened pre-9-11, where, where this, the police came up with the idea of using basically military tactics right. in policing large public demonstrations. You saw that in, in, in the mid-90s. You, in fact, the city of Miami brought John Timoney as their police chief to Miami because of his, quote, success in quelling disturbances at the Republican National Convention in, in, in the Northeast uh, years before. They did that prior to the FTA conference that happened uh, in 2003. And so, so now this distance that we mentioned earlier between the community and, and the police is, is, I think, further further is, is, is made greater by the police adopting basically military-style techniques techniques uh, in, in, in policing. And, and you see that. So, I mean... A lot of it was incentivized, too, because the, 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 the cash that's paying for a lot of that militarization and that equipment is, is from profit-sharing with right. a forfeiture, forfeiture funding, proceedings. which it incentivizes the forfeiture of, of you know, finding these, you know houses and home and cars and things that they can sell in order to take part in the profit sharing of you know to, to further build out there it's, it's it's just a really disgusting virtuous cycle really. so so i may have just kind of taken cycle. off on that and, and trying to answer your question but um you know i no, I just, don't worry about it that was the, good. <laughs> no 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 i i know what i'm saying is is that the, these things these things don't have an easy answer it's mm-hmm. it's not it's not fair of me to say they have no effect but it's not right for me to say, as some advocates will say, that it, it's resulted in meaningful reform because in many instances it hasn't. Right. Um, I think the only thing that really changes things are money, okay, and bad publicity, yeah. okay, and most importantly, political pressure, pressure from the community. Um, the, the problem I think we have in Miami and, and throughout the country is that People, people in our communities don't don't get upset in the same way they do if you want if if, if communities are threatened by the construction of uh, a building or some development right. or a clinic that 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 is built you know the, the not in my backyard mentality. Right. If people approach policing the same way they do about other public services. Okay. If the sewer doesn't work, if the lights don't work, okay. Water problems. The water problems, all these sorts of things. We need ongoing community pressure on the police to me to make to make a real difference. That's a that's a really great point. I mean, if you look at the weeks after Hurricane Irma, this entire city turned into activists. Everybody was wondering why the system was so broken and why the grid has all these problems, and everybody all of a sudden became an expert on FPNL. And it's because it affected them directly, whereas a lot of what we're talking about on a day-to-day basis doesn't. Right. And unfortunately, what happens when we have one of the blow-ups that we've had in this community (laughs) many times over the the time, over the 30 years I've been here, okay, they, they come and go. You know, there's things get stirred up and there's calls for reforms. There's studies. There's investigations. We're going to do this. We're going to change this. And then time passes. And then the energy of that of that activism wears out. Um, You know, it's very hard. And I think the system takes advantage of that. It takes advantage of the fact that many of the victims 
of these sorts of abuses are, are poor, unfortunately don't have the resources, don't have access to, to uh, people and, and places where real change can be made. Um, they don't have the resources to properly politically mobilize. Yeah. I mean, you know, I think we're in a period of, 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 of great activism right now. But th- this, is, this is an area that, that cries out for even greater, greater concern and greater political pressure. So if there was to be a confluence of that money, bad publicity, and the political pressure coming together, what emerged out of that? In your mind, would that be something best employed externally? Like a a lot of people in Miami might be surprised to find out you have a a, a civilian or citizens investigation panel here in Miami. Um, It doesn't get talked about a lot, but it, it does exist and it has funding behind it. Would it be something external like that, or would it have to be inside of these institutions? Like, what, what would the solution look like? Right, that's a really great question, and that's one I've been been sort of struggling with for 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 a long, long time. I was part, as many people were in Miami, were in, were involved in the creation of the civilian investigative panel that still exists in the city of Miami. Um, it was um, largely nearly twenty years ago, as a result of the police violence that the city of Miami was was waging on its on our own community, yeah. um, police violence, a lot of killing of particularly a lot of young black men, um, and the, the the notion of civilian reform or civilian oversight of police is not a new one. It didn't didn't happen here in Miami. When I practiced civil rights law in New York City, they've had one in, in, in vol- they've had one in place for for many many years, as other cities have. They're really a mixed bag. I think the one in Miami was created with a lot of great fanfare and hope, but what has happened is that legally, legally, and by state law and by local law, it's basically been made to be a paper tiger in some respects. Yeah. It doesn't have an independent investigative capacity. It doesn't have subpoena power. It has no ultimate say in the hiring and firing of police officers. It can investigate case and make recommendations to the police, but, but ultimately they do what they want. And the, and the absence of being able to subpoena them, which was a decision made by our court system in Florida, has severely limited. Now, is that to say that, that we shouldn't have it or don't need it or it's a waste of time? No, I think depending on, on usually the personalities or the, the leadership of, of those organizations, um, it, it can have and, and can bring to light, okay, and shine light and, and, and expose certain things that are happening within the police department that the public needs to know. I think that's an important function. Um, people, people often forget that the county, okay, that's, that's the city of Miami. You know, the city of Miami, as we know, is only one of about 35 cities in Miami-Dade County. It's the largest, it's the downtown jewel of Miami-Dade County. It's the city of Miami. But the county itself had a thing called the Independent Review Panel. And that was in effect for many years. And again, it had some of the same limitations that the CIP of the city of Miami had. But I'll tell you that due to the leadership of the members of the the IRP, the Independent Review Panel of the Miami-Dade County, in light of the FTAA demonstrations that happened in 2004, a lot of people don't remember what happened in 2004. This is after the World Trade Conference in Seattle. Right, which got a lot more publicity. Got a lot more publicity. And there were other conferences and there were political conventions across the country. The FTAA conference, the Free Trade of Americas conference in Miami, and was it 2003 or four? I forget, I think it was 2003. 
um, drew activists from all over the country. And, and the city of Miami, the Miami-Dade County, made downtown Miami, where the Intercontinental and various points downtown, basically into an armed, walled-off section where these diplomats were, were shuttled in and were housed in the Intercontinental. Yeah. There were thousands of activists there. There was a lot of protest. And, and it, was, it was an outrage as to what the police did. There were, there were a total, the people were beaten, people were falsely arrested. A lot of it was on video. Um, all, all they recruited uh, had cooperation agreements with over 30 police departments in South Florida. It was basically downtown was like a mili military occupation. And so what happened is, is that the IRP for the county wrote a really, really frank, honest assessment of what had happened and the breakdown, the breakdowns that the Miami-Dade police committed, okay, and, and all the crazy things they did mm -hmm. and exposed that. And, and so that was a really, really bright moment for the independent review panel. That was done largely at the leadership of the, of the, of the people involved, particularly Julia Dawson, who's a longtime Miami activist on police issues and other, other civil rights and civil liberties issues. She was actually a member of the IRP. And, and so I'm saying that in certain circumstances, those, those institutions can serve a really, really positive function by in gathering facts, using their status as an arm of government to expose itself. But ultimately, the, the civilian review panels and investigative panels, I think, in large part, have been a disappointment. In fact, I think the city is, frankly, probably comfortable that it has it because they can pretend that they're yeah, actually cover. doing yeah. it's cover for them. It's political cover for them. Mm -hmm. So that's a real mixed bag. To me, the only real reform will come is when, like I said, when people get angry enough and more and, and, and motivated enough to protest what's happening with with the police in their community as they would all these other issues of daily life. Only then when we have people people mobilizing calling for resignation, voting for people, voting for people yeah. who, will, who will do meaningful reform, county commissioners, city commissioners, who won't give police departments these sweetheart agreements, these union agreements, and you're talking to somebody who's a big pro-union person. My family, my, both my parents were union people. I believe yeah. in unions. I'm not anti-union. I'm a full believer in unions, however. But when you, when you basically give the key to the car to the to the to the to the police okay mm -hmm. to self regulate themselves and police themselves it's a disaster yep. and and they have protections built into their collective bargaining agreement that make it virtually impossible okay to fire people who need to be fired and they know it and they exploit it and they exploit the public fear about crime and and they threaten they threaten to Basically, not police is hard if you don't give us what yeah. we want. It's a, it's a really, really ugly situation. We need public officials who will stand up to that mm -hmm. and will say, look, you're, you've got a pension system. You're treated very well. We'll treat you fairly. No one should, be, should lose their job without due process and, and fair, basic fairness. But, but there are certain points. I mean, you think of uh, Herman Bosk. Herman Bosk? who was a police officer, still is a police officer in Opelika, the guy who was famously dubbed the most corrupt police officer in the country, right. arrested, I think, three times, 
fired six times, or maybe that's the other way around, uh, investigated over 40 times, and it's impossible, like a bed bug, to get rid of some of these. Right. And again, you know, this podcast, Bird Road, is union-made, union-approved. We are 100% union here, but there's something that's mutated in the concept, in the, in the, in the core structure of the, pol the, the police union, where it's turned into this shield. That allows the worst actors. To I thrive. represented the the family of Travis McNeil along with the Florida Justice. This is when I was in private practice. Okay, Travis McNeil was a young man who was shot in the back of the head as a result of a traffic stop by a city of Miami police officer. Yeah. Goyos, the city, Ronaldo Goyos. Ronaldo, exactly. Okay, the city police department it's itself. Okay, one of the few times in their history they found one of their own to have violated the constitutional rights of Mr. McNeil by shooting him in the back of the head and violated several department departmental policies on how to how to use a force. Okay, he's still a police officer. They right. recommended he be fired. He's still on the job. Right. And okay, that's not unusual. I've represented I've represented several people. I represented a man who was here on business from Los Angeles who was walking back to his hotel on South Beach who witnessed two police officers beating a gay man on South Beach. He gets on his cell phone and calls it in. The, the 911 call that he made is recorded. It's evidence to this day. It can yeah. still be listened to. He's recording what's happening. He's, he's telling the, the dispatcher. The police see him standing there. They rush him. Okay, You hear all this on the phone. They beat him up. They falsely accuse him of trying to break into parking meters and six blocks away, okay? This is a businessman who's here in Miami, literally had, had, had a business uh, dinner on South Beach, was returning to his hotel on South Beach, walking and sees this, calls this in. He's now spends a, a, a night and a half in jail, falsely charged, right. okay? That client, that, that person flew later. We, I represented him in the criminal case. Case was thrown out. We then sued the city of Miami Beach. We sued those police officers. He then flew out on his own dime from Los Angeles to, to a state attorney investigation along with the Miami Beach uh, IA officers ready to prosecute those people for perjury. Okay? They were never, they were never prosecuted. Of course. Okay? Well, they, they, were, they were fired, but then it was overturned. You're, you're getting at a basically my next question, which is we talked a little bit about electoral forced reform, voting out people and finding uh, better candidates and better representatives. And at the top, I mentioned that Kathy Fernandez-Rundle is the state attorney in Miami-Dade. She has this reputation as um, a prosecutor who's going to go to great lengths to avoid going after cops, even in some of these really outrageous cases like like the ones that you just outlined. Um some of the ones that we lined up, I mean, I, I just remembered these from my years reporting and from my years just being a resident in Miami. There was the uh, Goyos and McNeil case that, that I had jotted down. And then in 2012, um, uh, well, this is more recent, but it, the original case was in 2012 when Rundle declined to charge four prison guards who boiled a schizophrenic man to death under, the supervision, um, under their supervision in a, uh, in a detention center. In 2015, another one that's just sort of recently popping up now um, because the FBI made an arrest, a highly officer. Yeah, Jesse Menocal Jr. was accused by three women and a 14-year-old girl of sexual assault. And it came out that Fernand uh, Fernandez Rundle's office took no action. They didn't interview the victims. 
Um, as I said, the FBI eventually had to intervene and, and have uh, arrested Menachal. Uh, in 2011, Miami Beach officers unloaded 100 rounds into a man named Raymond Harris's car uh, during a crowded beach weekend. And I mean, the list just goes on and on. Um, the, the one that really stood out to me and the one that I remember, because at the time it actually got some national attention, was uh, from the years 2008 through 2011, Miami Gardens police arrested Earl Sampson dozens of times. They detained him dozens of more times, questioned him hundreds of times, almost on basically a daily basis for the crime of showing up for work at a local quick stop in Miami Gardens. And eventually, in that case, the chief resigned. Uh, the chief of police in, in Miami Gardens resigned, but it was under intense pressure. And as far as anyone can tell, there wasn't really any other change beyond that. And if you talk to people who live in Miami Gardens today, they'll still tell you that they feel, again, like they're under occupation. So that's just a quick primer for our non-Miami listeners uh, on Catherine Fernandez-Rundle, who actually, again, is... is potentially getting a, uh, a, a challenge uh, in, in, in the form of um, uh, Melba Pearson, who's a former, uh, former I think, director at the ACLU, um, who I think hasn't officially announced that she's running yet. My question for you is, is, is it time for Fernandez-Rundle to go, do you think? Is it time for there to be a, ch a change at the top? I mean, can, can these things that we're talking about ever be remedied if it's just the same leadership that has been there for all this time. Yeah, the, the time has come, okay? The time came a long time ago, okay? Um, Catherine Rundle has been the state attorney since 1993. She was appointed by the governor when Janet Reno became attorney general of the United States. She's been in office since 1993. She's, she's run for state attorney six times. Right. Um, to put that in perspective, um, you know, the, the recounting of the incidents that you just mentioned, those are the last 10 years. Right, very recent, yeah. Okay, we're talking about a, over a quarter of a century she's been the Miami-Dade State Attorney. Okay. Um, predates camera phones. Predates, predates a lot of... camera phones. Which is very important in this topic, you know, like, like we were talking important. about earlier, you know? Yeah, I mean, um, where do we start? Where do you want to start with that? I mean, <laughs> I mean... Um, you know, the day has long come, you know, I mean, it's as simple as that. It's time for a change. Um, we also talk about leadership, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, too, because these are a lot of organizations that you've tangled with a lot over the years. In the immediate week after what happened in Miramar, uh, Juan Perez, who's the director of the um, uh, Miami-Dade County Police Force, which is one of the top 10, like top, lar top 10 largest police forces in the country, very abruptly resigned, even though they kind of spin, spun it to make it sound like this was something that was in the works for a little while. But it was, I think, for most people in the know, very, um, very abrupt and maybe unexpected. What does that tell you? I mean, you have to look behind or read between the lines of a lot of this PR and a lot of these, you know, a, a lot of the, the movements and the, the reactions that a lot of these organizations, a lot of these departments do following these crises. Does it tell you something that, does it give you a feeling like maybe there is a little bit more accountability or is it more about the appearance of accountability? I mean, what do you think? Well, if you're talking specifically about the, the current chief of the Miami-Dade Police Department, um, I'm not shy to say what's on my mind or what I know to be fact or to offer an opinion. But frankly, I, I don't know mm -hmm. whether or not those circumstances are tied to one another. 
Yeah. I, 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 you know, so I'm not, I'm not going to say in fairness, something I, I don't know to be the case. Um, the, the, the turnover, you know, the, the, you know, I mentioned not to, not to go back, but I think it's important to, to realize the, the power that a person has in a position such as the state attorney or to be the director or the chief of one of the largest police departments in the country. Um, I mentioned earlier about the IRP, the Independent Review Panel of the Miami of, the, of, of Miami Dade County, and how it came out with this very direct and fair assessment of police, you know, misconduct during the the FTA. Okay, we don't have an IRP anymore, mm-hmm. and the reason we don't have an IRP is because the chief of police Alvarez for Miami Dade County, okay, was bitterly opposed, okay, to everything they did. And I, I make sure I get my, my, uh, get, my, get my names right, okay? We're talking about the chief of police for Miami-Dade County who became mayor. Mayor. And, and later he, was the only mayor in our history to be recalled. Exactly. Yeah. He made it, okay. And then he became a bodybuilder, so. That's uh, right. right. He's, a, he's a world <laughs> champion bodybuilder. God bless him. Okay? In his late 50s. Good but, for him. But, but my point is he made, it, he made it a priority to defund the IRP. And they, they, are, they no longer exist. They were put out of business, okay, because of, in my view, okay, they're doing the right thing. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, there's talk now that this chief of police uh, is, our current chief of police is now re- retiring or resigning, that he's considering running for mayor. Right. Okay, so, so these are very powerful platforms that that um, that exist, and these are, these are these are political people. Okay, right. That's the issue. It's no okay? accident that they graduate out of these high-ranking positions in their respective institutions and go into Correct. electoral politics. Yeah. Correct. And so so you know we we talk about Rundle. Rundle's been on the political landscape of Miami-Dade County for for like I said, a quarter of a century. Right. Okay. Her father was a very prominent lawyer from Cuba in Miami. Her roots to Miami are real, real deep, okay? And understandably, okay? She's a very, very powerful political figure. And we like to think, not ideally, not have some sense of, of some, you know, rosy-eyed, you know, Pollyanna look at the world, that everything's fine. We, it's not a question of ideally, it's a question of legally, right. chief law enforcement officers have a duty to apply the law and enforce the law equally and fairly to all people and protect all people, okay? Rundle has run the state attorney's office as a political figure rather than as a law enforcement or a legal officer. In the same way that, and I'm not making a comparison to our current attorney general of the United States, but but political influences are too deep, okay, and too prominent in what's happened to the state attorney's office over, over the last 25 years. Right. Now, I'm not naive to, to think that there's not going to be political influences in, in the court system. Yeah, I mean, there always will be. There always will be. But, but, the, but the balance here is so out of whack, right. okay? It's become incoherent when you look at the things now because she has earned uh, a couple plaudits recently for 
uh, prosecuting a couple of different situations in law enforcement. And all that that does is beg this question of like inconsistency and incoherence. Like, okay, why now, but not before? She recently brought the case against the police officer who shot the social worker mm-hmm. who was attending to the the disabled man who had walked away from his nursing home. As cut and dry a case as okay, you can Exactly. Say. Okay. That was the first case in 30 years that had been prosecuted, okay, for for a, a police officer for, for shooting someone. Mm-hmm. Okay. I mean, you're, you're, you're talking about, you know, tw- over 25 years. Okay. Um, this connection, the, where I re, re, the reason I mentioned politics is that if, if you go back and you look at the history, when Rundle became, Rundle, Rundle took over for Reno and Rundle was new. So she had to establish her political footing in Miami. This is in the mid nineties now. Okay. And very quickly after she became a state attorney, she got she got a lot of criticism from the police unions right. because she she prosecuted some police for for the usual kind of stupidity that some police officers get involved in. She also prosecuted a, a Miami-Dade commissioner named Bruce Kaplan, who happened to be a very close political ally of John Rivera, hmm. who was the police union chief. Um, now, in 2000 and subsequently, the police unions were all against Rundle. Okay, they their complaint was Rundle was too hard on the police. Okay, yeah, and the police union is a very very powerful f- political factor in electoral politics. Very rank and file, like they'll fall in behind where the the, the voting card that they're handed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I mean, and and so and so 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 what's happened? So. Uh, in 2004, I believe it was, she hired as one of her chief assistants a guy named Jose Hirojo, who used to be a legal counsel for the PBA, mm. for the county PBA. You know, was that was that a way to 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 establish relationships to to quell, you know, political unrest within the police? And then there's this unholy alliance that that occurs between between the police and the prosecutors when they have to investigate police. Right. You can't draw a line. You the, can't the, draw a line. Yeah. And, and in Rundle's office for years, she had her top lawyers who prosecute violent crime cases, particularly capital and homicide cases. She would use those prosecutors. And those, those prosecutors, many of them are very good lawyers. To prosecute those kinds of cases, you develop very close relationships with the homicide detectives from the various departments who bring those cases. Mm-hmm. Okay. So she had those same prosecutors, okay, investigate police who were involved in police shootings and when police would, sh- would use force and kill someone. The police officers in many of the departments, okay, who would investigate those cases were either homicide officers or former homicide detectives. So you had the same people yeah. who, would, who had to be aligned on your basic bad guy who kills someone in those cases. And then the next day, those same characters, those same players are going to be investigating a police officer who's involved in a use of force. Right. There should be some in an ideal situation like that. It should be, I mean, ideally, those institutions working together should be, if not adversarial, at least skeptical. Like you have to make 
me understand why this prosecution should be brought and not just working hand in hand, like let's make this work for both of us so that we can railroad somebody. Or or what you do is you you develop an independent core within your office mm-hmm. who doesn't have those relationships to the best to the to the extent that you can you it's uncompromised. Exactly. I mean, I mean, you're not ever going to remove those sorts of elements in the thing. But what I'm saying is, I mean, you're, we're talking about year after year, case after case, where the prosecutors see see the, the department themselves investigate when a cop shoots and kills someone. They investigate to see whether or not the cop is complying with their own procedures. The state attorney comes in by law and investigates whether or not they've committed a crime. Right. They're two different standards. Right. You can you can break one is about going to jail, one's about losing your job. Yes, yeah. exactly. Exactly. And so so time after time after time, memo after memo, okay, the review of these cases, they would go to extraordinary lengths to acquit the officer and absolve the officer of any liability. Now, in many cases that 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 was clearly the right thing to do. But one of the complaints that I and many other people have with Rundle is that that they apply a super duper due process to police and powerful people, but yet some poor kid from Liberty City or 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 down south yeah. who's who they'll prosecute him for a homicide or a serious case based on a one witness ID picked out of a photo lineup right. or on, on sketchy evidence. It's okay? likely that he'll never even talk to a public defender. I mean, it'll just get railroaded through the system. Or, yeah, well, or, they can be. And, yeah. but, but the point is, is that, you know, it's, it's good to be fair. Right. <laughs> okay. But be fair to everyone. Right. Okay. Be fair to everyone. And it seems, I mean, it's, it's inescapable. Case after case after case. Okay. They would, they would go to great lengths Okay, to absolve police officers for shooting people running away. Okay, to shooting people who've given up. I mean, I mean these these are these are documented cases. The other thing that Rundle's office has done, which they're now trying to clean up, after after years of people complaining about it, they take they took forever to conduct these investigations. Now the reason that's important is because. Those cases need to be investigated fully so that the victims of those cases can make decisions about whether to bring cases. Yeah. There was a case in, in Kendall where a guy, a police officer, was chasing somebody, jumped over a wall. The officer shot him in the butt, basically, and ended up killing him. Okay? They took five years to decide. They absolved that cop of any, of any responsibility. By that time, the statute of limitations on the case for a civil lawsuit had been had expired. It expired. And okay. in a lot of cases, I'm sure you've seen or had had it be the case where a lot of the key members of of, of a client or client's family that you deal with just die because right. people die over the right. course of many years. We're talking about some of those open the shooting cases. The Miami Beach case was open for I think as as many as five to six years. Right. I mean, it, this it's inexcusable, you know. And so, and and we haven't even talked about the police departments. <laughs> Failure to the the, the the way that they stretch the process out that ends yeah. up acquitting their own officers Running for misconduct clock, yeah. under departmental policies. So, I mean, it's 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 time for a change. You've been here a long time, and I think that when you talk to people who've been here even longer than you and not you and I have been here, you get this. You get the oh, you guys don't know, you don't understand how things used to be in Miami and why this outsized reaction of empowering law enforcement. It's important. This was a. This was a, the Wild West in the 70s and the 80s. You don't, you don't understand. 
And friend of the podcast, like multiple time guest host, uh, Billy Corbin will be the first to tell you like, yeah, well, you remember in the 80s is when the, the standards were lowered for entry under the police forces in, <laughs> across Miami-Dade County. And a lot of these problems really kind of trace back to then. But as somebody who grew up in the 80s and 90s in New York, I've seen what a, a city with a lot of crime looks like. And, uh, you know, maybe that's not the best example considering what's happened in New York over the course of the decades. But I, I don't know. Do you put any, do you, do you think there's a, like a reactionary element to that where people who are here and people who are like the, the Fernandez Rundles of the world who have a memory of this darker, harder time in Miami are more likely to allow this sort of oppressive policing because uh, out of some misplaced fear of the way things used to be when Miami was leading the nation in crime. Yeah. I don't buy it for a second. I was here in the eighties. Okay. There was like, there was in major cities across the country, a rise in violent crime. That doesn't excuse the fact that when, when police step out of line or use excessive force and kill people, that they're not held accountable. That, that just doesn't wash. Yeah. I don't buy it for a second. <laughs> Telling you though, that's I mean, what you hear from these. <laughs> no, I, I, I know, I know. And I think, it's, I think the other, the other argument they make, which is perhaps what you're also alluding to is that we're here on the front lines to keep you safe. Right. And we need to do what we need to do. And yeah, you that's can the other sit, one. You exactly. can sit, you can sit in your fancy house or in your, your high minded tower and, and you can talk about what we should doing, but you don't know what it's really like in life on the streets. Well, you know something? We, we do know a lot about what the life on the streets is. And, and life on the streets is a lot of oppression, a lot of prejudice, a lot of bigotry that plays out through mm-hmm. people who are police officers. Well, that, that, and, and that's not supposed to be that way. And there are good people today. There were good people then who, who spoke out against it, okay? And there were a lot of people who let it go, okay? The other Johnny-come-lately issue that I think needs to be addressed, and, and to her credit, only because I think of the political pressure that exists in our current climate and the political climate, mm-hmm. this state attorney and Janet Reno were responsible for basically felonizing children. We prosecuted in Miami-Dade County and in Florida we felonized children. We took them out of juvenile court proceedings at a Tried rate that was adults. greater than anywhere else in the country. We've created at least two generations of people with felony criminal convictions who have been disenfranchised. Okay, mm-hmm. This is an issue that we passed a constitutional amendment. Right. Now our Republican legislature or the Republican governor are coming up with this phony doing analysis, to, doing yeah. everything they can to 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 keep things the way they were, we're one of three states in the country. And that again, still using this. the judicial system to do it because the, the 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 stalking horses these uh, are these penalties and fees from Correct. associated with any past arrests. Correct. Yeah. And my point is, is that that's a battle that's been waged for as long as I've been a lawyer. Okay, over thirty years. Those have been lawsuits filed about that. There's been lawsuits in Florida filed about that. Where was Kathy Rundle? Where was Kathy Rundle on those issues? Okay, you can be the chief law enforcement officer, you can be the state attorney in Miami-Dade County and still understand that when a person does their time, pays for their crime, and is out in free society, okay, and has paid their, paid their dues, they should be reintegrated into society and allowed to vote. 
Okay, where was Kathy Rundle then? Only recently has she stepped up, okay, with the public defender, other, other political figures in Miami-Dade to try to go around this. She gets credit for that now. But where was she? Where was she five years ago? Where was she 10 years ago? Where was she 15 years ago, 20 years ago? Well, she, you, she's not just a figure of great importance in Miami-Dade. She's probably one of the most senior prosecutors in the state of Florida and nationally. Okay, Why wasn't the Florida Prosecutor Association, Okay, why weren't they lobbying for a change of, of, of these laws? Why right. weren't they lobbying the various governors exactly. who kept people? Okay, Rick Scott for eight years would hear maybe... 20 or 30 cases a year on the clemency process. Mm -hmm. Okay, people would literally go there begging. Yep, F okay? famously. This was famously, yeah. exactly. This was all happening. Everybody knew about it. Where, where were they? Where was Kathy Rundle on that issue? Well, I think that it's interesting because coming out on the side of, of Amendment 4 now and also hiring on, you know, as a backlash or as a reaction to. Uh, to not being popular amongst the rake and file and also the police union back in 2004, what rem the commonality I see is political expediency. It's what makes sense in the moment. Like whatever you can do to stay alive as an elected official. And it's just such a cynical way to stay in, in a position of power. I mean, we see it all the time. We shouldn't be surprised. But that 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 does seem like... <laughs> the, the, the commonality. Well, we're all forced to make choices in life, yeah. <laughs> right? Do we, do we put ourselves ahead of, of, of a greater principle? Or, or, a, or if you take on a responsibility to be the chief prosecutor, you, you have to make hard decisions. Sometimes those decisions may not be good for you personally. But real leadership, the people we remember historically, the people who go down in our minds are the people who, who looked those hard decisions and made the right decisions for, for in terms of responsibility to the rule of law and fairness. And, and I think you said it very well. Political expediency seems to be the, 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 the reason people act. And, and you know, the, these are what's really, I mean, I really think it's great that, that you're, you're, we're having this discussion and hopefully people listen to it and there's a lot of discussion. These issues have been going on you know, yeah. I feel like my, my entire professional life, since yeah. I became, I came out of law school, I came to Miami as a public defender. I mean, these, these have been happening. These aren't, these, aren't, these aren't issues that all, all of a sudden people are all enlightened now, okay? No. These are issues, there was, there was resistance to Clinton's uh, uh, crime, bill. crime bill in 96. Yeah. There was resistance to uh, the sentencing modifications that Florida made in the 80s and not, I mean, these things have been on the forefront. And so what we have to ask, not just of Kathy Rundle, but all of these people who are in the political process, where were you? Now, that doesn't mean the people can't evolve. What was your position on those issues? That doesn't mean that people can't evolve and change their mind over time. But it's a very, very important, I think, consideration <laughs> in determining who should, who should be driving the bus. Where were you? Where were you in five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago? It's a good question to ask, Graham. And to ask you a question, where can people learn more about you or where do you want people to? Well, I'll give you a moment to plug. What should, what, what should people go do to learn more about this? Well, oh, my God. Uh, read Michelle Alexander's book about mass incarceration. Uh, uh, support local efforts uh, in our community and elsewhere for criminal justice reform. 
uh, write your state legislators to ask questions about why we still incarcerate the same, essentially the same number of people in the state of Florida prison system that we did 20 years ago, notwithstanding the point you made at the beginning of our conversation, that crime rates for violent crime, whether it be robbery, rape, homicide, uh, armed burglary, all of, all of those rates of crime are down to historic lows, yet we still have the same number of people in prison. We're spending literally billions, I'm not, I'm not exaggerating, billions of dollars in Florida that could be spent to educate our children better, to uh, protect our environment, to address global warming, to <laughs> you name it, okay, to build a, a true infrastructure, uh, a real public transportation, you name it, okay. We are literally wasting money uh, housing people who, who pose no real threat to our society. Before we thank our guests, I want to really quickly call out some reporting. My old colleague, Chuck Fadley uh, at the Miami Herald and a uh, friend of the pod and also former uh, guest host, Jerry Ionelli from the Miami New Times. Uh, their reporting helped inform a lot of the stuff that we talked about today that I pulled from, uh, you know, for, for some of these uh, questions. But with that said, Ray Tessif, thank you very much for coming on Bird Road. It was my pleasure. Thank you very much. Thank you.